I think success of anything, whether it's a company or it's a sports team, whatever it is, success of any organization is not so much about who founded it or why, and not even so much about its business plan. It's about its ability to execute. The success is about execution. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in the weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. Hello, leaders. Welcome back. I got to tell you, I'm really excited about this episode. My guest today is Will Glazier. Will, you got to introduce yourself because like I'm fanboying right now and I don't want to flub it. So, you know, please tell everybody who you are, what you do, a little bit about yourself. I have so many questions. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. It's a pleasure to be on the radio with you. My name is Will Glazer, and I was born and raised in Berkeley, California. Mom was a psychoanalyst. Dad was a college professor. I have all kinds of ideas bopping around in my head. Went to school back east because you can't go to school where your dad's a professor. I did a triple major at computer science, mathematics, and physics at Cornell University. Came back to California, not Berkeley, but Silicon Valley proper, and made my career here, starting and running companies. The one the audience is most likely to know is Pandora Radio, online streaming music and have helped with others as well. And nowadays I'm working on a company called Gravango, which is using computer vision to eliminate lines in grocery stores. I want to talk about the history there because I think there's fun stuff. But first, let's talk about current adventure. So you somehow can take technology and visual tools and cameras and all kinds of interesting things and put them in stores. And then I can grab stuff off the shelf and check out with my app. And I never have to stand in a line again. Nobody likes working in lines or standing in line. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Just break this down. I mean, it's so over the top, amazing to me. Like I kind of want to just go, all right, why did you even tackle this? How's it work? Just tell the story because it's just fascinating. So it's all based on computer vision. And computer vision is magic. Like it's completely magic in the Arthur C. Clarke sense of that. So I am a fan. I'm a nerd, right? So I'm a fan of all sorts of technologies, ones that I work in and ones that I don't. And for a while, there was a lot of energy around driverless cars. How do you teach a car to drive by itself? And the first dozen efforts were terrible and pitiful. Cars drove off the road after driving 15 feet. They were a mess. But it was clear that computer vision was going to be the solution. And so I followed it, not again, not as a practitioner, but as a fanboy, as, as someone interested in computer vision. And in 2016, I got a little more interested in it because it became clear that it was about to be real. It was on the cusp of really working, not being a curiosity, but being a practical piece of technology. So I sat down and started writing patents. And so the patents are, how can you apply the computer vision technology to some field other than driverless cars? And there are a lot of applications, dozens, hundreds of applications. And the one that struck me as interesting was retail. So grocery stores and convenience stores where people go in, grab their merchandise, and then leave the store without having to wait in line, without having to wait for a barcode scanner, unloading your merchandise onto a conveyor belt. And it's all done by computer vision. So the, the cameras can see what's going on in the store. They know what everything is, where everything is. And so when something leaves the store, we know who to bill and how much. And how does this work? I can understand shelves are very orderly, but you have on the site or in some of the videos I saw, it's like the somebody picks up a piece of produce 
And that just blows my mind a little bit. Like, how do you, how many oranges or which collection of grapes or, you know, when, I mean, that stuff, how does that work? It's artificial intelligence, right? It's neural net models. And so the same way a Tesla driving down the highway can tell a bicycle from a stop sign from a lane marker, we can tell a banana from a bag of chips from a can of Monster Energy drink. And the system is incredibly accurate by retail standards. If you think of a point of sale system with a barcode scanner, they're 98% accurate, which is to say they're mostly accurate. They get about 2% wrong. A lot of those errors have to do with shoplifting. We're better than that. We're 99.7% accurate, which means we make a mistake 0.3% of the time. And I think 0.3% of the time is pretty good. Like our error rate is much better than a legacy system, but you couldn't drive a car on that. So if your accuracy was 99.7 and you're making a thousand decisions an hour, you're going to kill the driver every month. And so our accuracy is adequate for retail, but not accurate for life or death situation. Okay. And why did you want to do retail? Like, why is that the compelling space to use this? Why not? I don't know, like manufacturing or something like deeply complex and buried into the supply chain. Like there's a lot of places that, that you could do this, but you chose that endpoint retail touching the consumer. I'm interested in why. And also it's a business that has 2% margins. It's really tough for them. It's a hard business, hard to sell into because of they don't typically innovate the way that you would expect a lot of industries to do. It's just so human and consumer oriented. Like, why did that problem jump out to you? Yeah, it's a totally fair question. And let me say it's similar to Pandora. So waiting in line is something that I find annoying and wasteful. And I'm an optimization guy. I hate wasting things, whether it's my time or whether it's money or whatever it is. I'm an optimizer. And in the case of Pandora, I didn't like FM radio. Like it was pretty good, but it played songs I didn't like. It played songs other people liked. And I wanted a radio that played songs I liked. And I want a grocery store that can get me out of there without waiting in line. So very ordinary, common human problems in both cases. And my particular skill set is algorithms. And so in both cases, it, it seemed to me the solution was an algorithm or algorithms. So nerdy mathematical complexities to solve these two separate problems, and then a lot of work. So a lot of work in making them happen and then wrapping them in an interface so they're usable by folks that don't need to understand the algorithms. So my mom and my daughter can both use both of these products without needing to know how they work on the inside. And I'm an amateur musician, and great musicians come up with melodies and pieces of music in their head all the time as part of the act of creation. Nerdy people come up with nerdy ideas all the time as a part of the act of creation. And I'm a nerd, so I have a lot of geeky ideas. Just ask my wife. It's true all day long. And most of them are of no value. So most of the ideas that I have, and I think that many people have, are interesting and fun, but they're of no use to the world. And then if you have one of those ideas, maybe it's a hobby. So I think Tesla coils are cool. I have a way to make a Tesla coil. I'm going to go make a Tesla coil. But it's a hobby. That's not a profession. It's not going to make me any money. In fact, it's going to cost me money. But if when I sit down to think about what can we do usefully with computer vision, I'm like, we can apply it to grocery stores. That's cool. That's going to solve my problem and the problems of many of the rest of the people in the developed world. So that's good. There's a user base. But then to your question, is it a business? Can you take that thing which solves my personal issue with waiting in line 
and does it make sense in an industry that's running on a 2% margin? And so then you got to go from being an engineer to being a business person and do a crude business plan. It doesn't need to be precise, but it's order of magnitude. And if you conclude that this industry has a 2% margin and you need to charge them 1% to justify the business, you're taking half of their margin. There's no way in heck that they're going to do that. So that's not right. So the only way this makes sense is if you can increase their margin. So Gerbango as a product is free to consumers. So consumers can use it for no cost at all. They just get pure benefit. But the retailer gets a significant financial benefit. So for every dollar they pay us, they're making a couple of dollars in additional profit. Their margin improves because we're attacking cost center. So how did you figure that out? Because I know this after 16 years in B2B sales that the value proposition, if I can turn it into not just cut costs, but I will make you more money, that nine out of 10 times is the best possible sale. And everybody jumps out and talks to companies about how you make more money, but, or like how to cut costs and, oh, we'll make you more efficient. And we're like, but if you could show real money, top line, bottom line, that makes a huge difference is really all that matters in in B2B selling to me. So how did you go from like, how do you make that analysis when you have such a narrow space to even test the hypothesis in? Yeah, my thinking is exactly aligned with yours. I'm totally on the same page with you. So for it to make sense, for a tech to make sense, it's got to make financial sense. And so top line and bottom line. So the top line half first, if your store is better, if it's easier to use, if it's less of a hassle, if I can shop there at all at Friday at 5.30, like I'm not going anywhere near a legacy grocery store Friday at 5.30 because that's just a nightmare. So if you solve that problem, if you take an existing store and allow it to serve four times as many customers at peak, you make it a more pleasurable experience. And even when there's not a rush, just getting rid of the line or getting rid of the check experience altogether is pleasurable experience. So you're going to steal consumers. And grocery stores compete with each other partly on consumer experience and partly on price. And much of what they sell, not all of it, is the same. So if you want milk and eggs and Cheerios for breakfast, it's the same everywhere you go. So it's really about price and experience. And if you can make my store better than your store, consumers are going to choose my store, and that is top line. And if your store can serve more capacity with the same number of square feet and the same electricity bill, the same rent, serve more customers, that's top line. That's great. Bottom line is... You amortize the fixed costs over a larger number of shops. That's good for costs. And shrinkage is a huge problem in retail. The shrinkage is retail speak for things you bought at wholesale but didn't get a sell at retail. So your inventory shrunk in the way through your stores, where the word comes from. And there's several kinds of shrink that we can't do anything about. So smash and grab crime, spoilage or breakage in the store, a lot of things you would normally think of, we can't impact at all. But the number one and number two contributors to shrink on a dollar basis, we go right after. The number one is a thing called partial shoplifting. So again, full shoplifting, we can't do anything about. Somebody goes and grabs a candy bar, runs out the door, nothing we can do. Which is, you're reading about this in the news now, it's like these gang robbers or whatever, just like, what is going on here? But yeah, so obviously if somebody has the intent to get 20 of their friends and bum rush the target, (laughs) there's nothing you can do about it. There's a huge breakdown in social order, which we talk about too. And that's a problem that needs to be solved. But as sensational as it is, and in fact, as scary as it is for our society, 
it's relatively small number of dollars. Most of the shoplifting is a thing called partial shoplifting, where the guy goes in, puts the gin in his jacket, and then pays for the candy bar. And the reason that's such a bigger impact is that guy can do that four or five times a week and not get caught. And if he goes in, grabs a gin, and just walks straight out, he'll get look suspicious as the guy that keeps walking into our store and never buys anything. But if it's partial shoplifting, he's familiar to the retailer. That's the guy that just likes candy bars, and they don't know that's where the gin is going. That's a huge impact financial. It's number one. Number two is cashier fraud of some kind or other. So, so cashiers who want to steal from their employers are good at it. They're clever people. They figure it out. That's the number two cause. Those two conspire to be one and a half to two percent of gross, almost as big as profitability. If you can solve, the- yeah, you basically can double their bottom line if you can solve that. Spot on. So we solve that. We almost double their bottom line, which more than pays for our service and makes and gives them profitability and solves their two biggest problems. And as a footnote, this effect, this partial shoplifting plus employee fraud effect is not uniform across the industry. So some stores better, some stores worse, some neighborhoods better, some neighborhoods worse. There's a soft correlation between the shrinkage rate and the crime rate in the neighborhood. And there's another soft correlation between crime rate and income level. So there is a correlation, it's not 100%, between the burden of shoplifting and employee fraud and the LMI, low and middle income neighborhood the store is in. And what it means is those stores with high crime fail because their margins are upside down and retailers are afraid of LMI neighborhoods because they have had bad experiences in the past and are worried they might again. And that creates food deserts. And food deserts- Yeah, and I saw you're committed to, you're working on that food desert problem as a firm, which is cool. I'd love to talk about yeah, that. Yeah, it's a horrible thing for society. If you can't buy food at a grocery store, your only choices are fast food and liquor store snacks. And I'm not saying I've never done that. I eat fast food. I eat snacks from liquor stores myself. But if that was my entire diet, I would have health issues. And I would be delivering a larger fraction of my disposable income to buying food than if I could just buy fresh broccoli at a grocery store. Not only is it more equitable to deliver high quality, nutritious food to every part of society has a huge fall in health. And so you're supporting those efforts, I think, with some of the work you're doing. Yeah, we've made a pledge to deliver 1% of our stores to LMI neighborhood. Very cool. Very cool. Okay. This is the future. Obviously, like I was saying before we hit record that I've experienced this with the Amazon installation at the the airport, which I know is different because uh, you say on your site, while that's a purpose built little kiosk in the airport that's designed exclusively to do this, you have to go in a retrofit legacy retail, which is a totally different thing. And you've done that now successfully. I did note, in fact, I am a shopper at Mapco's in Nashville, and you have that on your timeline that I, I want to know where these Mapco's are because I, I want to go try it. I'll tell you what, if I can bring the addresses up real quick, I can read them right here. <laughs> I don't have them handy, yeah, but I'll get them to you. Fun. You need to do Fairview, Tennessee, just outside of Nashville. That's my favorite map. Go. Okay. I'm holding out here. Yeah. <laughs> we have, let's see, 8,009 Moore's Lane in Brentwood, Tennessee. And okay. That's the one I have handy. We have other map codes in your area too. Nice. Nice. Okay, good. I'm gonna Are you close to Brentwood? I don't, I don't know Tennessee very well. Brentwood is a sort of Southern suburb-ish section of Nashville that is sometimes I go to doctor appointments and business meetings there. Okay. So I'm going to find this Mapco. We'll, we'll, we'll give you, we'll email you the, uh, the whole list of all the ones in your area. Maybe there's a close. 
Oh, fantastic. Good. I'm going to, I'm going to go on a tour. Mapco's <laughs> a great partner. Those guys are built to succeed. We've, we've had a great time working. They have a very good rewards program. So yay. This show brought to you by Mapco. <laughs> so yeah, I talk about deployment, right? This is just a massive undertaking, right? I don't know how many tens of thousands of stores there are potentially, and I don't know how many you're in, but what's the roadmap here? You got to do this just a lot of times to change the future of retail, That's right? Spot, yeah, spot on. I, I think to succeed as a checkout free technology, which we are, you need to be good at three things. You need to be good at user experience, installation, and then cost of goods sold. And I think that Amazon did a fantastic job of showing the world how great the user experience could be. I think they did a really fantastic job of that. And I think they're not as good at the other two. So easy installation is just critical. And our technology is not designed to be built hand in glove with a new store. So we're not building entirely new stores with integrated technology. We're going into existing Mapcos and other Circle K, 7-Eleven, other, other locations, installing our system quickly, easily, lightweight, and then letting it run with the existing store operations, the existing merchandise. So we don't specify what can be sold in a store and we don't close the store to install. So they're super lightweight. And that's the only way to get big quickly. So Amazon's building one store at a time. It takes them a couple months to build a store. They do five, 10, 20 a year. They're never going to be materially significant at that rate. After a decade, they're not a meaningful part of retail. But we install very quickly with no engineers on site. So it's a delegated install, happens quickly, and you're up and running. And that's the only way to get to large volume. And if I had a store, like what's that? process. Well, I mean, it's a user experience for the customer, essentially like CX, right? It's like that thing, this feels like I would be scared of, oh my gosh, like disruptive and, and change. And how do I educate people? And, you know, just like, there's so much stuff there. This isn't like when it's there already, you might try it, but I'm still like, as a consumer, I'm like, what do I do? Right. You know, and talk to you about trying the one in the airport. Now I just want to see if I grab my $18 uh, bag of Cheetos, is it actually going to charge me for the right thing? And I, sure enough, that's what happens when I walk out of that little store. There's a, just in this tiny little kiosk. And again, this is my only experience with that kind of technology. There's like cameras all over the place. How many cameras does it take to, to do this? And how do you even think of retrofitting a store and not closing it? It sounds like almost like a construction project. Like that blows my mind. Yep. If you go to an Amazon store, again, I have a ton of respect for those guys. They, they broke the ice. They were there first. But their stores are frightening. There's cameras everywhere. The, the, the store is frightening. And it takes them a long time and a lot of money to install. I love the experience and I don't like the way they implemented their tech. If you go into our store, it's super lightweight, not scary, not offensive. And again, we install quickly and easily. Go to one of those stores near you and, and have a look around. It's, it's not frightening. We never close the store to install. And so... A little more than half of our clients operate 24 by 7 stores. And so there is no time when the store is closed. Some of them close. And we install at night, but at night when the store is open. So low traffic, but not zero traffic. I would say our installation is about as disruptive as those little hand carts they use to restock the shelving. So you can't buy the Cheetos when the stand cart's right in front of it. But if you wait three minutes, they'll move away and you can do it. That's how disruptive we are. So the stores don't close. And how everybody can picture in their brain a convenience store how many cameras are mounted around like a normal gas station store just to achieve that i mean i would guess do you need line of sight to every 
item? We do. So when you think about a camera, don't think about what you saw in the Amazon Go store. Don't think about the black eyeballs you might see in Las Vegas that hang from the ceiling. Don't think yeah. about those big CCD can cannons in an old banks. Think about, um, well, I can show you. Think about this thing. It's the camera on the back of a smartphone. Oh my so they're gosh, tiny. Wow. Okay. They're made in very yeah. high volume. They're not very expensive. They're super high resolution. They're mass produced yeah. and they're not expensive. And if your tech can use that kind of ordinary camera, you don't need all that fancy heavyweight gear. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah. For everybody just listening to the audio, literally it's just a little, just like on the back of your cell phone there. And I, it would be totally unobtrusive. You would not even know that was there. So this is fascinating. You know, you know, I had no idea. Tw twice we went in and installed a store and the people were leaving and the store manager said, thanks, when are you coming back to install the system? Because they thought they had just installed right. something because they, they didn't even see the cameras. That's how unobtrusive they are. Now we're not trying to hide them, yeah. but we're trying to make them right. aesthetically pleasing. Yeah, and, and, and it's not creepy. <laughs> Let's face it. I go into the... The airport store, like I was talking about, I'm like, geez, don't pick your nose or something. It's just going to be out of this high def video of every hair on my non-existent hair head. To that point, we have a commitment to privacy. And so we really don't want to be the vector to leak a picture of you picking your nose to the world. Like that, that, that would be a disaster for us. Right. I'm quite sure there are plenty of other people that would think that's funny. That so we, so we yeah. need to get camera images to figure out where you are and figure out if you picked up the Cheetos or the Flaming Hot Cheetos or the yeah. potato chips or whatever. But as soon as we figure that out, the video is of no value to us. In fact, it's a liability. In fact, if we accidentally pick up a picture of you picking your nose, we don't want that. You don't want that. So let's get rid of it as quickly as we can. Nobody wants that, man. Yeah. In the environment of like people abusing facial recognition and all this stuff, let's talk about a lightning rod. You wouldn't, that's third rail. Get rid of that. Like we would never do shredder, never right? do facial recognition. It, it's yeah. No yeah. And I read that on the stuff, which I think would make clearly make people feel better. So in this consumer then experience of the technology with the app, I pick stuff up, it shows up on the app that I'm doing that. And as I read about it, then you scan a particular code on the way out and then it'll charge you. What happens if you just pick up a bunch of stuff and it's in the app and then you don't scan on the way out? Yeah, there's two use cases. So the first looks like Uber. You download a smartphone app, you put your credit card information in there, and then you tap your phone on the way out. That's use case number one. And like Uber, it's disorientingly easy. So the first time I ever used Uber, now years ago, it was a little confusing because it was just too easy. Like it just, what, did I do it? Did I pay? I'm not really sure. I checked my receipt. Okay, I'm done. I'm good. And that's the first experience with the Gerbango. So everyone who uses Gerbango eagleized their receipt. And the second one and the third one to make sure we got it right. And our data shows by the time you get to receipt number 10, 12, 20, nobody cares. You know we got it right. You trust us because you've been watching the first few go by. But anyway, use case number one looks like Uber, right? You just scan your phone and you're done. Use case number two is you just tap a credit card. You go and you collect what you want and you just take your ordinary credit card and just tap it on the machine and go. And that's all there is. And what if somebody does neither of those things? Or let's say they're honest and they forget and they just walk out of the store with it. Or can they just not do that? Is it gated in some way? Or? No. So like before, you can still commit smash and grab crime. You can still go and grab a thing and run out the door and we don't change. We don't add any gates or any barriers. And the reason is our business model is different than everybody else's. So most of the rest of the world are building these bespoke stores with gates, barriers to entry. We're retrofitting stores, which means a bunch of things are different. 
And one of the things that are different is you got to let legacy customers in. So the legacy customers who want to keep using the legacy cashier have to be welcome in that same Mapco store. And so a little bit like Yellow Cab versus Uber, consumers can choose either one they want to in the stores we're in. We're just offering it. But what happens if somebody forgets to scan and the, the store worker doesn't know they don't want to stop them because they could be an app user? Do you have to catch up with that somehow? Like, or is that just considered like rare? Maybe that just doesn't happen as much? It's a great question. And so the very first system we built, our first prototype when the company was launched, didn't have any exit experience at all. You walked in, you get your stuff and you left and the phone just figured it out. It was all phone based. It was all geofence. There was no experience at all. And we worried about exactly the issue you're talking about, which is how do you tell a Grabango shopper from a shoplifter if you're the person working in the store? And we concluded you couldn't. So there needed to be an exit ritual of some kind. And so now we have a thing we call the Gerbango Pay Station, which is just basically a screen with a card reader on it. And its purpose is for you to go over there and tap your card or your phone, and then it beeps, gives old, plays a little happy song, and then you can walk out of the store. And that communicates to the cashier you're not a shoplifter that you have paid. The whole system could work without that. It's possible, but we were worried about the situation describing. And in the instance that somebody does forget, is that just a forgivable loss? If somebody forgets, you have to decide, and we don't decide, because the retailer's got to decide, was right. that an intent to steal or is it really a forgetting? That's not right. on us. That's on that. Yeah, it's a, it's a very elegant solution. Thank you for indulging me on all this. I, I love <laughs> I, I probably could have read or watched the videos, but appreciate it. I mean, I just love the creativity of solving the just the rigor by which you've solved and thought about the problems. I think that is a window into this algorithmic brain, and that's fascinating. To me, I am the guy who also has notebooks full of problems that nobody should solve and nobody would ever pay to solve. Yeah. I've read that from you. The, the brief time I've known you, I get, I get that your works that way too. What if we made a business that did this? And I'm just like, wow, nobody would care. If there's one person in the world that might pay for that, it, it no, just bad idea. But it's okay, rewind because I think I have to know the Pandora story. It would be ridiculous if I didn't there. And like the music genome project was just fascinating to me as a reader and consumer and tech geek. And then I know that I used to sit there with that app and program in songs just to find out which songs matched the genome with it. I, I thought that was fascinating. So gosh, tell the story of that because I, I loved it. That was such a fun project. Oh my goodness, it was such a fun project. So the origin story is a little unusual, which is two friends came to me when I was living in San Francisco and said, we want to create a business that recommends music to people. Great. Again, I'm an amateur musician. I'm not good, but I like music. I appreciate music. And there were three of us. I was technology and product. John was business management, and Tim was the musician. And the three of us were going to figure it out. And I said, how does it work? And Tim said, well, I can tell you about your musical taste. Great. Let's go to my house, look through my CD collection at the time, and tell me about me. So he did. He gave me a bunch of insights into my musical taste, recommended some new music I would like. And I said, Tim, how do you do it? And, he's, and his answer was funny. He's like, I don't know. And then John turned to me and said, can you computerize that? And I said, no. So that's the origin story. That's the so it's just, it's just what I'm thinking. Right. Yeah. We're all great problem solving stars. Right. Yeah. And, and Tim has this brilliant encyclopedic knowledge of music, but it's very organic and very integrated. And I had worked on the problem, a related problem, several years before. And I have this thing I call my blue notebook. And it used to literally be a notebook. Now it's a file in my computer. But in the old days, it was a, literally a blue notebook. And it had all these ideas that I work on that I just aren't businesses. 
And one of them solved the what's now called the Netflix problem. But back then, it was the Blockbuster problem. You'd go into a video rental store to buy a VHS tape. That's how long ago we're talking about. And I have an opinion about all the videos I've seen before and no view on the ones I want to rent. I know I want to rent one that I've never seen before, and I want to rent one that I'll like. But definitionally, I don't know if I like it until I've seen it. So that's the problem I was trying to solve. And I had a nerdy mathematical idea about how to solve that problem using data and signals and algorithms that you would now call AI. But again, at the time, we did not. And I said to those guys, I don't know what Tim is doing. I don't have any idea what his brain is doing. But I have this idea. Give me some time to work on it mathematically. And then I want to spend some time with Tim and try to pull out some of his knowledge and put it into this program. And so I did. And then we did. And we spent three months taking his understanding of how music works and my mathematical model of how the algorithm will work and integrating them. And then we enrolled a bunch of music. Our starting genre was folk rock. So Simon and Garfunkel and Cat Stevens, that genre. And it worked really well. It worked surprisingly well. And then we launched the company. But the origin of it was a combination of mathematics and understanding of musicology. And you basically, if I recall, I think I read about it. My suspicion is that you had to actually tag each of the sort of dimensions of a song one way or another. Like at that point, could you ingest audio and it would tell you things about it? You couldn't, right? You literally had to tag a bunch of different heuristics on every song. That's right? right. That's right. So the first problem is figuring out what does music look like? How do you construct music? And again, I follow all kinds of technologies I don't work in. And at the time, there was a project called the Human Genome Project that was happening with it was a race between two governmental and a private. Um, so that was in my head. So I'm like, well, doing, we're doing the same thing for music. Let's call it the Music Genome Project. That's where the name came from. And then we invented this structure that for the mathematicians out there is quasi-orthogonal. So we had a bunch of what we call genes, and each gene represents something about the music, and they're as independent of each other as possible. They're not perfect, because you can't do that with art. And then we enrolled all the music along all these characteristics, hundreds of them, and we called the people that did it music analysts. Be a music analyst, you have to be a pretty sophisticated musicologist with a pretty sophisticated ear. One of our entrance um, tests to hire a music analyst is describe the use of harmony in Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And the correct answer is a complicated answer. So you need people with ears and training to do this. But we did a thing that in the modern era of AI, you'd call tagging. And back then, we didn't call it tagging. We called it enrolling, but same thing. But then you had to consume every single song and tag on how many dimensions? A couple of hundred. So the biggest genome is the jazz genome, which was 400 and some odd dimensions. Our genome is a couple hundred. Yeah, but it's a lot. How did you finance this? That's just like an outrageous amount of work. It was an outrageous amount of work. So let me hit you with a couple of numbers just to quantify this. So when Pandora launched, we launched on a foundation of about a gigabyte of data. All that human effort of tagging all that music, basically every music that's ever charted in the United States. plus So we're talking like gigabyte of metadata. metadata. Exactly. So like text. Human generated, all of it. No computer generated anything. Not even beats per minute. Everything was human generated. And these are not like, are they enumerated or are they like open-ended or like you built the taxonomy? We built the taxonomy and then everything has to be monotonic and mostly it's a zero to five scale, but there's subtleties. And we launched on about a gigabyte of data, which was called big data back then. Or let me give you two other numbers for context. The chat GPT or technology is built on about 50 terabytes of data, a lot more. And... 
Urbango ingests about 20 petabytes of data every day. So we're many orders of magnitude higher data throughput than either of those two technologies. You're like the uh, Apollo lander compared to SpaceX at okay. that point. It's just, it's, yeah. it's just far more data than anyone's doing. We originate 10% as much data as all of YouTube at our current startup scale. So at maturity, we're making more bits than the top five other competitors combined. Like we, we, it's an enormous data flow into our high volume AI system. Wow, that's incredible. So how many songs, did, did, does that still go on now? Is this is like decades later, it's under Sirius XM. Like this, is this still a, a thing yep, now? There are still musicologists. They're still very sophisticated people and they're enrolling music as it gets created. So when your favorite artist, whoever your favorite artist is, let's say Taylor Swift launches a new album. In the old days, we'd go to the store and buy it and enroll it as quickly as we could. Nowadays, the record label gives it to us a month early so we have a chance to enroll it. But so it's live when she goes live with it. But yeah, all that music that's newly created gets enrolled. And then we work our way, they work their way through past catalog into other genres. Wow. I would guess now there's all kinds of abilities to somewhat automate those things in ways that you couldn't before. You can probably analyze audio waveforms and all kinds of stuff. And maybe it cuts down on the work, but you've still got that, that human in the loop. Yep. Yeah. I, I can't share the number, but it costs some money to enroll a song. And part of the economics of, of the Pandora business is what does it cost to roll a song? And, and how much do you get? How much do you profit from streaming the song? And so songs have to stream a certain number of times where they're profitable. Then you guess some wrong. Some songs are lost, but mostly they're a profit. And anything Taylor Swift does is <laughs> fascinating. So at least on LinkedIn, it, you had adventure after adventure and have some ongoing things that, that you're involved in and new companies. How did that work? You left your own company there and then there appears so. I don't know the, the story yet, but, and then went on to other adventures. What was that turning point? So me as a person, I like intellectual newness. It's the thing that just gets me excited. It is solving a problem or learning a thing. That's what gets me going. Everyone's different, but those are the thing that, that excite me. I think that may be typical for entrepreneurs. And so I've had these two parallel careers. One is starting and running a company where you're all in on a team and in a project and a business. And the other is being a consultant, generally to startups. In the old days, it was to Fortune 500 tech companies, but more recently, it was to startups. And then you're spread more thinly. So you're learning more stuff in more fields, but you're not responsible for success or failure of the project. And so they're really different kinds of ways to spend your time. And I've done about 50-50 if you look at the, the years of my career. And right now I'm all in on Drubango and I have a couple of side projects that I'm helping out with in various ways. But I have this exact thing. I absolutely know this playbook <laughs> because I've always had, there's always the potentially not being utilized consulting company that is the next thing that I will end up when I'm done with this adventure, I'll go do that again. But it's perpetually there and always open. And it is the place, and I always recommend this to, to entrepreneurs, it's just have that. You never have a hole in your resume. And it's really the place where you get to incubate and think about what next cool thing am I going to do in between your dedicated adventures. So I, I completely resonate with this. Story. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for me, they're diverse. I have one project in healthcare, one project in energy. They're really different parts of the brain and parts of the world where I get an opportunity to contribute. Yeah. And I bet as a problem solver, the way that you think you like experiences in different domains and probably learn things that you wouldn't have that you then come back and apply to another domain. And I think that's where a lot of neat innovation gets 
lost as people silo into, I only do healthcare. But if you were to go do something else, utilizing your ability to solve problems, you'd probably find a domain specific implementation that turns out is useful in a place that those people don't look because they're healthcare mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a lot of cross-learning, a ton of it. Very cool. I, I'm sensitive to time. I could probably talk to you all day about this stuff. So this is a blast. Thank you you know, so much for spending the time. I warned you ahead of time that I like to ask guests, and I think you'll probably have interesting insights into this. Okay. You're in your seat, your will, you have your experiences, you're doing interesting stuff. Everybody else that's listening and you know their guests that have, that have been on, what's on your radar? What do you think about and ought to be, you know, on their radar that they aren't thinking maybe about? You know, it's, so it's futurist kind of view, and sometimes there are warnings or just, man, I'm a leader of a B two B company. What should I be paying attention to? A great question. So let me speak to other entrepreneurs out there, to my, to my peers. Is that sort of the question? Oh, absolutely. We talk about B2B a lot. There's entrepreneurs of all sorts, and I I find the lessons are applicable. (laughs) Apropos of what we were just talking about, absolutely. So I think there's a common myth out there in the world that success is 100% tied to the founder. And if you look at some of the great companies and and some of the great leaders, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and Larry Ellison and Larry Page and all those folks, undoubtedly phenomenally gifted, brilliant people, but the company didn't happen just because of that. So there's this thing I call SEET, S-E-E-T, which is why do things happen? What, what, where does success come from? And I think success of anything, whether it's a company or it's a sports team, whatever it is, success of any organization is a, not so much about who founded it or why, and not even so much about its business plan. It's about its ability to execute. The success is about execution. Execution is entirely carried out by the team. So if success is about execution, execution is about team, your success is 100% driven by who's on the bus, who's on your team. And so no matter whether you're B2B or B2C or, or B2G, whatever your world is, your team just matters. And you've got to find a way to get the best people on the bus, retain them, elevate them, and let them do their job. That's the biggest insight I've learned through all of my activities. It's all about the people, always about. What have you done to to crack that challenge? Did you write the algorithm? Is there the team genome that we can all plug into? Maybe API access? That'd be really cool. A little bit, a little bit, yes. So it's a three-step process. So process component number one is take hiring really seriously. So don't bring in your buddy, interview them, and then offer them a job. Cast a really wide net and interview a lot of people. Make sure there's always at least one woman on every interview panel because men can't spot creeps the way women can. So make sure you're casting a wide net and filtering them properly. And then hire the best. And our hire rate at Curbango is 0.4%. So we're 10 times harder to get into than Stanford University. We're super careful about who we hire. And we do it using an in-house process that we've developed to filters on technical skills and corporate culture and engagement, a bunch of stuff. That's one. Two is once someone's in the building, treasure them because you just worked really hard to find this person who's super awesome. They're awesome. So offer them learning and development opportunities, training opportunities. They're going to have good ideas that are better than yours and better than their managers. So listen to them and take them seriously. Give them the right amount of freedom and the right amount of direction. And so the way we manage that at Grabango is using OKRs, this idea that 
I learned about from John Doerr, but it, it, I think it predates him. But it was it's part of the initial e-management structure that made early Google work. So section two is how do you run the, the team to optimize their experience of being on in your company? And then three is when you find an underperformer or a bad actor, you have to let him go. And that's the hardest of the three because maybe it's a really nice guy who's your buddy. Maybe it's someone who's going to have trouble paying her rent next month. It's really hard to let people go. But if you keep the people that aren't contributing, your team average sinks and you demoralize all your superstars who are watching this underperformer hang around and, and mess things up. But that like, why do they tolerate this? Like when we're carrying the load, it's a, yeah, it's the worst thing you can do is like try to mitigate that by hiding people or the, and you see big companies do this all the time, which is just, ugh. it's hard. It's hard. And so we have a superstar CHRO who manages this whole process for us, but the talent side of your business seriously makes everything else in your business work better. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Oh, fantastic. And I love the detail on it. Like the. Are you surrounded with people that think about everything at this deep of a level? Like you guys must have some really cool meetings. Yeah. I love going to work. I, I, I get to work with such great people. Yes. Yeah. We have a lot of people Fantastic. at every level, in every role. How do you balance that with efficiency? Because it'd be so fun to sit, at least for me, it'd be so fun to sit around with all those thinkers and just pontificate all the time. So we, in fact, have seven core values. And one of our values is, let me quote it correctly, think recklessly but temper your actions with pragmatism. And that goes to the question you just asked, which is well, you want people to think recklessly. You want people to come up with harebrained crazy ideas, but then don't act crazy. You can't spend all day long coming up with crazy ideas. Come up with the crazy ideas, and there's going to be yours, and there's going to be mine, and there's going to be hers, and there's going to be his. And then let's figure out which one to act on, and then by the end of the meeting, we're going to put one of them into place. Those must be really fun conversations. Yeah. To, maybe you should install little cameras all over the place and just store that brilliant. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe people wouldn't like that. Fascinating, man. I Oh, gosh. Thanks so much for showing up. This is just a blast. If anybody is resonating, I'm sure they are. Careful giving out your personal phone number unless you want to do that. But what channels could people follow you on, reach out, talk to you about the product or your experience? I typically find there's a lot of follow through on the episodes. I'm not a super heavy social media guy. So I use LinkedIn to so catch me there. But otherwise, I've had a great time. This has been really fun. Enjoy the conversation. And we got to go get that coffee. Absolutely. Appreciate that. Look forward to it. Thanks for coming out, Will. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com.